listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the June edition of the JNNP podcast. This month, editor Matthew Kiernan talks to Angela Vincent, who's Emeritus Professor of Neuroimmunology at Oxford University. They discussed new guidelines for recognising symptoms arising from autoimmune syndromes of the CNS. In some of these conditions, you do need to be quite aggressive. Many of the clinicians treating these patients, because previously they've not been able to recognise patients who are immunotherapy responsive, are a little bit cautious about the way they treat patients. And Daniela Kath, a psychiatrist at Allcheck Academic Anxiety Outpatients Clinic, which is a part of Utrecht University, tells me what her review of the relationship between obsessive-compulsive disorder and non-tick movement disorders reveals. Among the most important comorbidities of OCD are, of course, the ticks. And what we wanted to do is to look at the relationship between OCD and other hyperkinetic movement disorders. But before we get to June 2012, back to November 1988. As part of the Oxford Community Stroke Project, Charles Warlow co-authored a paper on the incidence, outcome and type of stroke in the county, which has become one of JNMP's most highly cited. Now Emeritus Professor of Medical Neurology at the University of Edinburgh, I caught him between sailing trips to look back on the study. Good afternoon, Charles. Hello. The research sounds like a huge undertaking. You had a population of 105,000 from which you examined nearly 700 who had a first ever stroke over those five years. What was it that made you and your co-authors take this on? What hole did you want to fill? Uh, It's difficult to remember now, but I think it was back then. We didn't really know how common strokes were in the UK. We had death certificate stuff, which is a bit inaccurate, and we wanted to be more on top of the cases as they occurred rather than waiting for routine data, either from hospital discharge statistics or from death certificates. And the trouble with the former is that it turned out that a lot of strokes weren't admitted to hospital anyway. They were looked after by GPs at home because Mm. they were either too mild to be admitted or maybe too severe and and the patient was in a nursing home. So we wanted to to know what the size of the problem was, and no one had done that before in the UK, and we wanted to know what sort of strokes were out there, how how many were hemorrhages, how many were infarcts, what the causes were, and this wasn't that long after the introduction of CT scanning, um, Mm. the sort of mid-1970s. So because we were working with the neuroradiologists, we had the opportunity to scan everybody, or most people. Um, which again hadn't been done before. Mind you, it was fairly primitive CT scanning in those days, but it gave us a handle on whether the stroke was due to hemorrhage or an infarct. Mm. And can you tell me a bit about the study design and and who came up with this? Because you formed something of a a precedent with your methodology. Um, Well, I don't know that it was that much of a precedent. I mean, we came to this as neurologists and therefore obsessional and wanting to get on top of every case and find out everything about the person. And also we came at it as amateur epidemiologists, realizing that um, you couldn't get at every detail in every patient, but it was very important to try to get every, everybody with a stroke. And so we were we cast the net wide. We had a lot of 
people who weren't strokes because we encouraged the GPs to send us anything that they thought might be a stroke. And in a way, that's pretty interesting, the, the people that are thought to be strokes but aren't. And so we cast the net wide. We tried to get every single stroke patient in that period of time in that population by working with the GPs and the 10 practices. And we did what is now called hot pursuit. In other words, as soon as we heard about a patient, we were there. Well, I say we, it was the research fellows, first Peter Sandico, then John Bamford, then Martin Dennis. And so we were right on top of the patients with the maximum chance of A, getting the clinical diagnosis right, and B, getting a CT scan early enough before any hemorrhages had disappeared. Also, in, in the midst of all that, an American epidemiologist came along called Roberta Malmgren, who wrote a paper really on the methodology of the, of the ideal stroke study. And, of course, one of the things everyone who does a stroke incident study thinks is, A, that it's ideal, and B, that they got all the cases. Well, of course, that neither of those is ever the case. You know, one can but do better. Hmm. And were you convinced from the beginning that you'd succeed with this study design and getting reasonably accurate results? Did you manage to, to measure the outcome and the instance and, and also the, the type of stroke? Yeah, um, yes, I think so. I mean, you know, although there were seven or 800 or whatever it was at the end, I mean, it was only about 200 cases a year or a relatively small number of strokes and transient ischemic attacks and not strokes and not TIAs and you know there was a full-time research fellow working on this and a couple of research nurses they were all post MRCP they two of them were neurology trainees one was a geriatrician trainee so they were quite experienced clinicians and it was crucial for the research fellows to have clinicians people who could front up to stroke patients in hospital or in a nursing home or oftentimes in their own homes and take a decent history and examine them properly. So they were just, a, I don't know, five, six, seven patients a week you know, for a full-time research fellow. It wasn't that big a deal. Right, okay, so it just kind of kept ticking along over those years. Yeah, it did. The problem was when they went on holiday and I had to see the patients, they always <laughs> that I didn't do it properly. Okay. <laughs> and how did you all feel about it during the study did you feel that you were doing something important that would would have a good impact or was it you know just kind of the nine to five well one always hopes that something's important enough to have impact i'm sure we we did hope that um it, when you start a study like this it's quite difficult to get sort of instant gratification as it were in the sense of papers and acknowledgements and all that because mm. you start very small and you gradually collect cases and then you think you've got enough to produce a paper on something or other and when you've got a succession of research fellows coming one after the other each one of them needs to get something out of it specifically an MD or PhD and mm. papers so it's the sort of leader of the project I had to kind of think of how these people would get what they needed from the point of view of their career development and what we or the science or the epidemiology needed in in, in the web output and I always knew that it would take years I mean by definition it would take years to look at the 
outcome, uh, you know, recurrent stroke after two, three or four, five years. Um, so I knew that was going to be a long game and that we had to keep the study going. And we've done exactly the same here actually in Scotland with a, a similar study of intracranial vascular malformations. I said to the research fellow, look, this is a 20 year project mm. and he's still at it after about 10. So these things take time, but you need, you do need to have some sort of output as you go along, if for no other reason to satisfy the funders and to, to keep the funding going. Right. When we started the Community Stroke Project, we had absolutely no idea that 20 years later Peter Rothwell would come along and repeat it and look at the instance of stroke and find how much it declined. Mm. I mean, I, you know, when we started, I had no idea I was going to move to Edinburgh. Otherwise, if I hadn't, maybe we would have carried on. I don't know. Hmm. The paper's done very well in terms of citations, but you, you seem quite dismissive of this in the commentary writing that the impact factor's actually um, quite a poor surrogate for real impact. So for you, what is the, the legacy of the research? I mean, is it the Oxvas study which came out of it that you're, you're most proud of, or, or what, is there anything else? Um... Yeah, I think very pleased about that sort of fluke. I'm pleased that we sort of set up methodology that others have copied and improved on. I'm pleased that we generate some stroke physicians of the future. I mean, you know, Peter Sandico, goodness me, Martin Dennis, John, mm. so they're all independent researchers in their own right now and various others who were attached to it, like Alan House, the psychiatrist who came along, and Ian Starkey, a cardiologist. In 30 or 40 years' time, the whole thing will be forgotten, and it'll just be part of history that everyone's forgotten. But it sort of pushed along the notion that you could actually measure stroke incidents in a community, mm. could look at what was going on with strokes, what sort of strokes, and other people have done the same in, in other countries. So we can now very similar methodology, compare stroke rates in, in different places at different times. But just counting strokes and doing nothing else is incredibly boring. I mean, that is not what it's about. It's much more than that. It's to do with you know, what sort of strokes, why did they have a stroke, what was the outcome. Just counting numbers of patients with X, Y, or Z is, is pretty dull. Now here's Matthew Kiernan and Angela Vincent, Emeritus Professor of Neuroimmunology at Oxford University. This one said it is choice in JNNP is from Angela Vincent and her co-authors looking at central nervous system neuronal surface antibody associated syndromes. And we're very lucky to have uh, Angela on the line here. Good evening, Angela. Uh, good morning, Matthew. <laughs> well, perhaps you could set the scene a little bit for, for this Review. You mentioned at the beginning that the concept of antibody-mediated CNS disorders is relatively recent. Yes, that is partially true because, of course, there were one or two conditions in which antibodies were thought to possibly have a role. Um, I suppose the most important one was stiff person syndrome, where the antibodies to GAD were thought to be associated with patients who often, but not always, responded to immunotherapies, and therefore those antibodies might well be pathogenic. But as you know, GAD is a intracellular target, and it was difficult to see how the antibodies could be directly affecting its function and thereby causing the stiffness. What's happened in the last 10 years is that there are now 
antibodies which are known to bind to the cell surface antigens, that is usually membrane proteins, expressed in the nervous system, often with very clear functions. And those antibodies do definitely seem to be pathogenic and to cause some rare but very important immunotherapy-responsive diseases. How do you go about in terms of establishing the pathogeneity of, of antibodies with neurological syndromes? One of the first things to do is to see where this antigen is expressed in the cell. And if it's on the surface, then those antibodies to it can clearly have some effect on that protein because it's going to be accessible to the antibodies if they get into the central nervous system. And of course, that is an if, which um, it slightly complicates the interpretation of the presence of these antibodies, which are often measured in the serum, at least initially. Once you uh, have convinced yourself that there is an antibody to a cell surface antigen, then you need to see what those antibodies could do. And there are lots of approaches that can be used in vitro, on cell lines expressing the antigens, for instance, and on cultures of neuronal cells. But ultimately what one wants to do is to inject the antibodies into experimental animals and see if you can reproduce the condition or some aspects of the condition in the animal. So in terms of the various syndromes, you've divided them up into those that are sort of classical paraneoplastic syndromes compared with those that uh, have surface antibodies. Could you sort of expand a little bit on, on that sort of differentiation? Yes, I think when, when we started writing this, um, we did want to try and clarify some general issues. And one of them, of course, is trying to distinguish between those antibodies that are the classical paraneoplastic antibodies associated with syndromes which very seldom get better with immunotherapies. Um, with those conditions in which the antibodies are against the cell surface antigens. So we started actually by saying, well, what are the differences between those syndromes? And that's the first table in the paper. And in fact, there really is only one important difference, and that is that the classical paraneoplastic antibodies are directed against antigens which are intracellular. And we don't think those antibodies are, are pathogenic but we think they're very good biomarkers for the associated cancers. And those conditions are probably caused by irreparable T-cell-mediated damage, which therefore doesn't respond to immunotherapies. Whereas the conditions which are associated with the cell surface antibodies, although they may be clinically similar, for instance, you can get limbic encephalitis in both categories, those conditions will be treatable. And really, there's not an awful lot of other differences, except that the cancers are less common in those patients who have the cell surface antibodies. And you've touched on an area there, biomarkers. Is there anything from your um, in-depth studies that can predict who may or may not respond to immunotherapies? No, I think only... If the patients have antibodies that are binding to a cell surface antigen, one should assume that those antibodies are going to be pathogenic and try and treat the patient. And I think one of the problems that people come across is that they're not so confident about using immunotherapies in these conditions. 
and they don't necessarily treat aggressively enough and therefore the patient doesn't necessarily get very much better and they then think oh well perhaps that antibody wasn't pathogenic but I think that that may be a, a, an error and that it is important to treat these diseases quite aggressively and um, particularly for instance the ones associated with NMDA receptor antibodies which everybody believes now are pathogenic but sometimes the patients can take a long time to get better. Well, with those patients, it's often multiple um, immunotherapies, IVIG and steroids and in some cases stronger immunotherapy. So why do you need multiple different approaches for, for treatment? Well, I think if you look at the antibodies in some of the patients where one's had the opportunity to look over time, for instance, some of these patients, the antibodies are rising at the time you start treating. There must be a very strong antigenic drive, which is really pushing that antibody production. And it takes time to get on top of that. And also, of course, you have the problem of the blood-brain barrier. We don't know how much of the antibody is actually made in the brain in situ. We know that you can find it in the cerebral spinal fluid but that may be a poor reflection of what's going on in the brain parenchyma. It's very difficult to tell. If most of the antibody formation was in the brain, then presumably you'd have to try and get the treatments into the brain parenchyma too. So there's that aspect. There's the difficulty of trying to overcome something which may be a relatively permanent damage in some patients, although I think that's probably not a major problem. And just the whole question of how the antibodies are getting into the brain and whether your treatments can stop any further antibodies getting into the brain and the relative importance of treating the systemic immunology or the cerebral spinal space are issues which we just don't really know enough about. In terms of treatment with intravenous immunoglobulins, for a clinician, I mean, why, why do you think that therapy works? I think it's a very extraordinary thing that it does. Obviously, if you inject a lot of immunoglobulins into a patient, and the patient's IgG levels can go up to several fold higher than normal when you first give the infusion. So that must say to the immune system, there's enough antibody around, you don't have to make any more. And I'm sure that sort of feedback inhibition plays some role in what happens. There's also the possibility that the IgG that you inject blocks FC receptors, which are the receptors that can transport antibodies across cells occasionally and also, funnily enough, out of the cerebral spinal space. But that may influence the transport of antibodies into the brain. So it may be quite good at preventing further antibody getting into the brain. And it may have all sorts of other functions that we really don't know anything about. It does seem a very mysterious treatment, but it does seem to be relatively effective in some of these conditions. Look, um, based on your, your overview, you've come up with some guidelines and criteria. Perhaps could you give us a bit of an overview about how you came up with these criteria and uh, how to go about sort of a, an approach to coming up with a diagnosis. Yeah, that, I have to say, took us a lot of agonizing. 
we thought that it wouldn't be too difficult to come up with some sort of guidelines, but it isn't easy, and I just hope that what we have done could be helpful to people in the way they think about these syndromes. The idea of the guidelines was, first of all, to make sure that you didn't neglect to recognize a paraneoplastic syndrome. And, of course, the paraneoplastic syndrome guidelines came out in your journal in, I think, 2004, a paper by Grouse et al., which has been very highly cited. So putting that aside, because that's already covered, we wanted to talk about those syndromes where the patients had a neurological disease, a central nervous system disease, where the onconeural antibodies were negative, where there was could be a tumor, but that wasn't the prime purpose of, of this at this time. Then one asks whether the patients have an antibody to one of these new surface antigens, like the NMDA receptor or the voltage-gated potassium channel complex antigens, LGI-1 and CASPER-2. If those antibodies and some of the others that are now available are positive, then you have a fair chance of having a patient with an immunotherapy-responsive disorder. But first of all, you must screen for tumors because tumors are present in some of these patients. You treat them with immunotherapies, and of course, if they do very well, then you have a definitely cell surface antigen disease. If the immunotherapy is unsuccessful, you may have a condition caused by these cell surface antibodies, but it's going to be a probable diagnosis rather than a definitive one. If the antibodies to the known antigens are negative in the first place, then you have a question. One possibility is that you measure antibodies to the GAD antigen because we do know that those antibodies can be associated with immunotherapy responses. And you can also do something rather more sophisticated, which is to look and see whether the antibodies bind to the cell surface of neuronal cells in culture or the neuropil or brain tissue. And that, of course, is some, a technique which not everybody has available. But you can try immunomodulation with immunotherapies, and if it's successful, then again, it seems very likely to be probably a condition caused by cell surface antibodies, even if those were not detected in any of the available tests. There is, of course, another scenario where the immunotherapy isn't successful, and you really don't know where you are. And at that point, you would probably want to reconsider all your other potential diagnoses and make sure that you hadn't missed something else that could be treated in a different way. Well, it's a, a fantastic overview, and, and Angela, you finished your manuscript by saying that it's an exciting but also a very challenging field, and you suggest that systematic studies of treatments are, are clearly needed. I suppose in terms of that, uh, is there a particular approach that you suggest, and are you taking regular samples from patients throughout their course of treatment, or what, what are you suggesting in terms of, of this approach to treatment? Well, as I said um, earlier, I think that in some of these conditions, you do need to be quite aggressive. Many of the clinicians treating these patients, because previously they've not been able to recognize patients who are immunotherapy responsive, are a little bit cautious about the way they treat patients um, with immunotherapies because they're, they're just not used to using them. 
So I always tell the clinicians if they feel a bit uh, uncomfortable about it uh, to talk to the people who treat myasthenia gravis because those people, those clinicians, know exactly how to treat aggressively when it's needed and, and so they'll be able to give them more confidence. In Oxford, because the assays are here and freely available, my colleagues do tend to send samples pretty regularly, but they still tend to go by the clinical response rather than the antibody level in many cases. Generally speaking, we get quite a few samples from outside Oxford, which are sent for follow-up on, on particular patients, but usually those are situations where the patient's not apparently getting better and they're worried that the antibody hasn't come down and very often it hasn't come down and this is probably because as I said earlier the antigenic drive may be so strong that it's going to take a while to get on top of it in order to reduce the antibody levels. There are cases where the patients appear to have got better, their antibody has gone down, it may still be present and they're worried and so they want to know does this mean the patient's going to relapse? And we really don't know the answer, although we do know that some of these patients do relapse. And perhaps we ought to be treating long-term uh, maintenance immunotherapies in some of these patients. So these are all the sort of questions that one's being confronted with almost every day, in my case by email rather than in front of the patient. And we really don't know the answers, and we need to try and gain more information and then start really trialing a few approaches and see if we can show which are the best ways. Well, Angela, I'd like to congratulate you on a really tremendous review and I think you've set the field up perfectly and uh, thanks for explaining it all to us. Thanks, Matthew. It's a pleasure. We've had Angela on the podcast before, talking about her early work investigating autoantibodies in neurological disease. So listen to our February edition if you're interested. Next up, non-tick movement disorders and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Daniela Kath, psychiatrist at Utrecht Academic Anxiety Outpatients Clinic, which is part of Utrecht University, has co-authored a review on the relationship I spoke to her about her findings. So, good afternoon, Daniela. Good to have you on the podcast. Good afternoon. You write in the title of your review that you want to move beyond the obsessive-compulsive tick phenotype. Could you just tell me a little bit more about what you meant by that? The relationship between obsessive-compulsive disorders and tick disorders uh, has been very profoundly researched and among the most important comorbidities of OCD are, of course, the ticks. And what we wanted to do is to look at the relationship between OCD and other hyperkinetic movement disorders. Is there much literature out there at the moment on the relationship between OCD and these non-tick disorders? Well, there is much more research now on the relationship with the chorias and actually with the dystonias. Um, that is really new, but most of the studies have been case control studies and there only have appeared very few uh, longitudinal or uh, family studies. Okay, sure. Could you tell me a bit about the pathogenesis of movement disorders and OCD? 
I mean, if you look at these broadly, are there aspects here which overlap or suggest that or why there may be comorbidities? Yes, what I think is very interesting about movement disorders in general, uh, so both the hyperkinetic and the hypokinetic, is that they really form the link or the bridge between uh, neurology and psychiatry because the pathogenesis is located in the cortico-striatal-thalamocortical circuits, the CSTC circuits, which go from the frontal brain uh, cortex through the thalamus and the striatal um, nuclei back to the cortex, and which actually are responsible for any goal-directed behavior, but especially for goal-directed movements. But this same CSTC circuits are involved in uh, obsessive-compulsive or repetitive behaviors. In these connections between uh, OCD and uh, movement disorders, of course, the, the tics and the tic phenotype stands out because tics are actually of the movement disorders, the most voluntary. So they're very unwanted and they're uh, mostly a sign of disinhibition of ventral or striatal areas over uh, the frontal control. So they escape frontal cortex control. But to a certain extent, what I found very interesting about doing this review is that similar mechanisms seem to have a role in um, the connection between OCD and and the chorias. Okay. And what about the, the actual search for the review? Were you able to find all the papers that you wanted or hoped for? Since obsessive-compulsive symptoms and obsessive-compulsive disorder represents a somewhat heterogeneous uh, phenotype, we had to do somewhat different searches to capture all kinds of repetitive behaviors. So we first had a very large number of uh, papers, but there were not too many papers who stood our selection with respect to standardized interviewing had been uh, performed or validated rating skills on this repetitive behavior had been used. Mm. I would really like to encourage researchers to use standardized uh, rating skills and also if you research into repetitive behavior to not only use skills that have only one or two or three items, but that are a little bit more extensive. Could you tell us about your results then? Um, earlier you, you talked a bit about the the etiology of the careers. What else were you able to conclude with these? Yes, in the careers what we actually found was a relationship OCD occurred quite frequently in the careers, but mostly in the mid-phase of the disease. So in the end stage of the disease, uh, apparently there was no, uh, hardly any OC symptoms anymore, which might be the results of that people are too uh, ill and there has been too much damage done in this generative disease to be able to generate uh, OC symptoms. Mm. What we actually concluded from the papers that we found is that 
this might not be due to a shared familial relationship, but uh, due to uh, a shared pathway, a shared uh, neuroanatomical pathway, which is defined by these CSTC circuits. Okay. And for the Sydenham's choreas, apparently, there is some shared vulnerability both to develop OC symptoms and to develop Sydenham's chorea due to uh, this streptococcal infection. So only a streptococcal infection is not enough to explain the comorbidity between Sydenham's chorea and OCD. Apparently, there's also some shared genetic relationship. And what about dystonia? What did you find here? In dystonia, the, the picture is less clear. You have many different forms of dystonia. You have generalized dystonia and uh, myoclonus dystonia and then the focal dystonias. In some case control studies, they found increased frequencies of uh, OC symptoms, but in others not. And especially myoclonus dystonia is not very clear, but there are more studies indicating that OC symptoms are somehow related to the dystonia than not. But data seem to suggest that they are related to people who have the dystonia and not to unaffected relatives. And they're clearly related to severity of the dystonia. So that suggests that the OC symptoms are a consequence of having the dystonia rather than having a shared underlying etiology. Well, Daniela, thanks very much for coming on and uh, sharing your insights about, about this relationship. Yes, well, thank you very much. That's all for this edition. We'll be back next month. But in the meantime, there's always JNMP's blog and Twitter feed for more comment around the journal. And of course, all the papers we've discussed here are open access if you'd like to read more. All can be found on jnmp.bmj.com. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.